welcome to the Scene to Song Season 5 finale. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and this week I brought back eight of our Season 5 guests to talk about some of the topics we discussed this year and answer some questions from our listeners. This discussion was held live on Sunday, December 18th on Scene to Song's Facebook page and was recorded for this podcast almost in its entirety. I hope you've enjoyed the season, and if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, as well as give us a rating and a review, which will help this podcast find even more listeners who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musical theater as a literary art form. And now, let's listen to the Season 5 Finale episode. Welcome, everyone, to the annual season finale live show. I'm Shoshana Greenberg, the host of Scene to Song, and I'm joined today by, uh, I think we have one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guests from season five, plus uh, Beth Ann Cohen who uh, was not a guest this season, but has been a guest previous years, who is uh, assisting with the live stream today. So welcome everyone. Um, I am first gonna start out uh, with uh, just some, you know, info on how the episode's gonna work. We're gonna do a lot of musical theater discussion, uh, but we'd love for everyone to participate. in that discussion. So there is a Facebook uh, on this post. You can comment in the thread uh, as we go along. And uh, with anything uh, you want to discuss there, comments on what we're talking about or questions you want to pose to us, uh, you can also call in. I have the number there, should have the number there in the post already. Um, with uh, the number, meeting ID, and password, you're essentially calling into the Zoom. Um, and uh, Or you can Zoom in uh, with the meeting ID and pa- uh, password as well. So uh, we'll hopefully be talking to some of you during the show. And uh, But we will uh, get started with uh, just some intros for the people here who are on the call, who are guests this season. So um, we'll go around, Uh, I'll call on you uh, since there's no visual order, that's the same for everyone. And uh, you just will say name, episode, what your episode was, where you're zooming in from. And just as like a fun question, each person can say a musical they've been thinking about or listening to recently, and if there's a reason why. Uh, so uh, we'll start with uh, Eric. Awesome. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Matthew Richardson. Uh, I was on the episode, uh, I think it was titled Disney Parks Music as Musical Theater, which was a lot of fun. Um, so check it out if uh, that is your bag. Um, I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Super cold right now. I think it's like 20 degrees out. Um, and uh, one thing I've been listening to a lot is um, the show Octet by Dave Malloy. Uh, I'm working on a sort of acapella thing, so it's been uh, sort of a, a template to, to go off of. But uh, there's a lot in there that's, that's fun. So, um, yeah, that, that's me. 
Great. Uh, next, we'll hear from ML Greer. Go for it. Hi. Thanks. I was on episode um, 73, I have it right in front of me, about um, evil characters. And um, I am zooming in from Izmir, Turkey, um, where I, I teach. And yeah, looking forward to discussing musicals with y'all. Great. And any any musical that's been on your mind recently? Oh, yeah. So um, it was actually, I thought it was the Lana's episode, but maybe it wasn't. I heard of a new Julie Stein um, song. Um, and so that got me into this, like, like putting his name into Spotify and then discovering all these musicals that I never know he knew. I never knew he wrote. So um, the most recent I listened to was Some Like It Hot, which wasn't like terrible, but um, I think it might have been the last musical he did. It was like in '92. Um, so that anyway, that was interesting. Yeah. Awesome. All right, cool. So next, uh, Tammy Tucky. Hey, you guys. Sorry, I completely lost my voice this week, oh, so I no. sound terrible. <laughs> but uh, yes, my name is Tammy Tucky. If you can't identify me from the episode 75 that I was in because I sound different. Um, but we got to talk about Marvin Hamlish, David Zippel, and Neil Simon's A Goodbye, The Goodbye Girl, which was really fun. And I'm I'm hailing from Philadelphia, PA. And uh, the musical that's been on my mind, especially this summer, was a musical I found. It's a French musical called Romeo et Juliette. And uh, I've never heard of it before, but I, I, somebody had shared it with me and it's been in my head nonstop, really fun pop songs. So if you ever get a chance, it is online. And I think there's like an English translation of it if you ever want to take a listen to it, but it's all stuck in my head. Awesome. <laughs> I remember when you posted about that and I was like, what is this? <laughs> I know, right? I was like, even me, I was like, hmm. Cause like somebody suggested it after I saw Notre Dame de Paris and they were like, you've got to see this musical. So um <laughs> And it's apparently going to be touring um, at some point, but right now it's um, over in the Midwest for its English debut because it's really an overseas show. So, which will be cool when it gets here. Woo. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Uh, so next we'll have uh, David Armstrong. Hi everybody, I'm David Armstrong. I'm coming from just outside Seattle, Washington on Vashon Island, which is very nice, but a little cold today, unusually cold. And I was on episode 79, I think it was, which was about hairspray, because this past year was the 20th anniversary of hairspray, which makes me feel very old. Uh, but uh, it was great to talk about it. And uh, oh, musical. Um, I, randomly, just yesterday, I was talking to some friends and we started quoting lyrics from a musical, probably some of you have never heard, it was called Top Banana. It was a big hit actually back in the 50s, starred Phil Silvers and Rosemary. And I was curious what Alexa will tell you. You say, Alexa, play the, you know, the cast album to Top Banana. And she did it yesterday. So we listened to Top Banana, which has really great Johnny Mercer songs. He wrote the music and the lyrics and really funny smart satiric lyrics it's all about early television it's like a satire of early television so i highly recommend that if anybody's if you've never listened to top banana do that awesome uh great next uh ilana crush 
Hi, everyone. Um, so my name is Alana Kresh, and I am coming to you from Woodbury, New York today. Uh, it's about 40 minutes outside of New York City on Long Island. It's not the Woodbury to the north. A lot of people think it's where the outlets are, but it's not it. And uh, I did episode 80, which was the funny girl episode, uh, which was so much fun and, and wonderful. And we got to talk about the show and also the real life of, of Fanny Bryce. And um, what I have been listening to lately is actually out of the blue. I was in a big Cy Coleman phase. And then all of a sudden this past week, I started listening to the recordings from the, the film, the 1954 Star is Born. So uh, so I started getting in a really hardcore Judy Garland, you know, kind of thing. So that's that's been this week for me. It's been uh, the, you know, not OG, but second OG, A Star is Born. <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Orianne Israelson. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am uh, calling in from uh, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, on the unceded Ashnabek territory. And uh, my episode was episode 81, so right after Ilana. <laughs> and I was on with Kay Clark, and we talked about Phantom of the Opera and how it promotes uh, potentially an incel character. Um, I was also on season two, I believe, where I talked about uh, comparing uh, Fiddler on the Roof and the Rothschilds and active and Jewish protagonists. And I never got to do the final episode for that season. So I feel like I'm like making it for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that's a great episode. Also, uh, people should definitely check that out in season two. Um, and next we have Mark Elliot Stein. Hello, um, is great to appear with the, this gang of musical theater obsessives like me. Um, I was in episode 82 about Pal Joey, the um, Rogers and Hart old old chestnut, which which we dug up. Um, and what I'm what I've been doing lately, actually, as I mentioned in that episode, is appearing in, as a cast member in a Gilbert and Sullivan workshop on Long Island. Oh, I forgot to say I'm in Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, but I'm originally from Long Island and my father used to appear in Gilbert and Sullivan um, operas. And just recently, I am not a singer, I am not trained in music, but I joined the chorus of um, the Mikado with this with the same group and get <laughs> there. Oh, it was so much fun. But also to be at my age, you know, and to appear in a cast for the first time ever. Oh my God. I mean, I I think probably 99.9% .9 of people who ever appear in a musical comedy do it younger than I have. Um, so it really was mind-blowing to be in a cast and to find out after having enjoyed probably 2000 musicals in my life to be on the stage looking at the audience instead of in the audience looking at the stage um and this year i enjoyed it so much this is the long island light opera company um our friend from woodbury maybe you'll come um but oh great <laughs> love it um we're not doing it till next june but um but we're going to be doing princess ida which is a much more obscure gilbert and sullivan but i'm i'm totally into it i'm like so swept up into the um light opera comic opera world right now which i think is definitely you know musical theater <laughs> great yeah that's um i think we talked about that a little bit on the show when you were on um it's uh great to like actually perform in shows 
along with seeing them. Um, next is uh, Rose Ginsburg. Hi, folks. I am Rose. I am calling in from Jersey City, New Jersey, right across the Hudson River from New York City. That's traditional homeland of the Lenape people. Um, I was on episode 84 talking about abolition in musical theater, which are two of my favorite things to talk about. So I had a blast. Um, and lately I have been thinking a lot about the music man because of a project for work. Always fun to think about the music man. Um, but I'm also just not a specific show, but I got to see Ohio State Murders on Broadway. And so I'm on a little bit of an Audra McDonald kick um just listening to her albums and her covers of things and she's always wonderful to listen to no matter what great and orion i'm sorry we missed your um musical you're listening to <laughs> oh yeah i've been listening i've been studying for exams um end of the term exams so i am um listening to a lot of chicago i don't know why it's <laughs> me it i think it's because it's so peppy and upbeat and I mean, it's not a beat, not like the subtext, but, you know, the actual songs. So, yeah. Great. And uh, Bethann, uh, you weren't on an episode, but everything else, go for it. I'm a, I'm a super fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, hi, I'm Bethann. I'm here in the Bronx and I brought visual aids. Uh, this is Katisha. So that's for Mark. <laughs> Uh, if you go back to season one, I did my, this, why is this so good about, um, um, I forgot the title of the song because the title of Gilbert and Sullivan's songs are always not the hook. It's just uh. the, where the first line is, uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the kind I think it was, um, alone and yet alone alive. and yet yeah. alive. Yeah. Yeah. Caddish's big song. Anyway. Um, and, uh, what I'm listening to, I brought another visual aid. Um, I, my husband just got me this for our anniversary. So, uh, we met watching the, uh, Bette Midler version of Gypsy and, uh, he got me a signed, uh, a signed picture. So I've been listening to a lot of Gypsy, which always is, is good. <laughs> Great. Um, that is everyone. So, so I, before we start on that discussion. I wanted to also just um, note on um, the passing this week of Sarah Schlesinger, who is the chair of the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at NYU's uh, Tisch School of the Arts. Um, she was a teacher of me and many guests who have been on the podcast, um, were, who are also alums there from that program. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, we actually, I guess, on this uh, group don't have as many alums <laughs> from that program. But um, if uh, anybody wants to say anything, I'll just say, uh, you know, I, I was very close with her and had um, a great relationship with her and um, also loved her work as a lyricist and book writer um, uh, in shows such as uh, In This House. Uh, and Ballad of Little Joe, which were the two I saw at Two River Theater out in Red Bank, New Jersey. And um, yeah, if you can, there is a cast recording of uh, Ballad of Little Joe, which is uh, a wonderful recording. There's no recording of In This House, um, but you can, I think, find like snippets of it, especially on like the theatrical, the licensing site. 
um, which is um, that is is a very exquisite score with her collaborator Mike Reed. So I just encourage people to you know check out those shows and her work. Um, yeah, and just uh, I if anybody <laughs> wants to say anything, I'll jump in. Yeah. Uh, I knew Sarah for many, many years and yeah. served on several committees with her. And uh, she invited me with Mindy Dickstein to teach uh, at the, in her, in the program there at NYU. Mm -hmm. uh, I usually go in once a year and do a guest lecture there. And she was just an amazing lady and a really great lyricist. I saw a, a Ballad of Little Joe. I think there was a some production in New York City. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I remember going to see it. And she was just so talented. And I think probably maybe her greatest, you know, contribution was what she did for all the writers who've come through that program. But what a great lady. Oh, great. Yeah. And Orion. Yeah. I mean, I was one of those writers that was her greatest contribution. So I, um, she wasn't my direct thesis advisor, but, um, she was one of the um, three thesis advisors I would see every week on Monday. So she really was there during my thesis show. And even after talking with her, um, Sarah was just such a giving soul. And she, she helped, you know, she just wanted to help and wanted to guide and, you know, be that support for everyone. I think that shows in the community of the program that we have, that's, you know, it's a very giving program. Um, yeah, I mean, Sarah was great. She came up with the title for my soon autobiography that I'll write. So <laughs> I'll probably using that and I'll thank her. Um, I think the, probably what I will remember the most about Sarah is, um, and this is very indicative of her as a character is um, where her desk was situated in her office. When you would walk by, her desk was by the door so that if you walked by, you could see if she was in the office or not. Um, she could have easily put her desk on the other side of the office and you would never know if she was there or not. And in fact, when I told my parents that she passed away, they're like, oh, but it's a dean. You know, your de deans don't talk to the students. They're not involved. I'm like, not this dean, you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when you, you would be able to go by and see that she was there and talk with her. And I think that sums up so beautifully. I mean, someone actually took a picture of her office and desk and posted it on Facebook. And I was like, it's going to be hard visiting the program and walking by the office and, you know, she's not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt that too. I, I definitely was one of the people that walked by <laughs> And was always looking in to see if she was there when I was visiting um, to see if I could like pop in and chat. So, yes. Um, anybody else? Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else had any interaction with her or her work, but definitely, um, definitely check it out. Um, guess a good start uh, starting discussion is just like if people have if you guys have gotten any feedback on the episodes that you did or um, if you listen to other episodes this season that you found interesting um, either if the guest is here or not here but um, yeah uh, if anyone wants to start uh, with that I I 
would love to start the discussion of Pal Joey, which I've never seen and I still haven't seen. But um, there was a lot of talk about um, the the movie and the most recent cast. But um, I'm just fascinated by the original cast because Gene Kelly. I don't know. Is there any sort of recording of that? And what do you think of that casting? Because I was really interested. It seems like talking about the importance of a cast to any show, um, you know, I would, I would assume that having Gene Kelly on stage really kind of made a big difference. Not that the, the music kind of sells itself, but that having him on stage must have been quite something. It was um, a perfect role for him. Sorry, Marco, you're the expert no on problem, this. No problem, please. There is some home movies of him you can find on YouTube of some uh, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee's sister, uh, June Havoc, filmed home movies of the of that of the rehearsals, some dress rehearsals. So you, there's no sound, but you can see images of Gene Kelly dancing and uh, elements. You can, it's pretty easily accessible on YouTube to find. But it really made him a star. And what I always found is interesting is the movie he then went to Hollywood to make, which was Me and My Girl, he basically plays the same character in Me and My Girl. It's very similar to Pal Joey. Go ahead, Mark. I didn't want to take uh, your fun. Yeah, uh, very interesting. I actually didn't know some of that. Um, I was not aware that there was any trace of it at all. And yeah, so that means we all just have to imagine what Gene Kelly would have been like in the part. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll also say my first experience of Pals Joey was um, the Elaine Stritch uh, HBO special where she tells this, if you haven't seen it, just unbelievably fabulous story about, you know, being an understudy at the same time as as playing that role and, and singing Zip and <laughs> yeah, um, right. Zip. Um, I, I actually saw that live, too. I've been so lucky to, <laughs> to see. So that's it. I, and of course, Elaine Stritch was not in the original Pal Joey either. I mean, the original Pal Joey is really lost in time. And Elaine Stritch was in a revival. And yet her story, you know, she does own the role, though. Um, when that revival is really what made the show a big hit. The revival was more successful than 1952, I think, or something like that. Wow. Which yeah. it, the original didn't have a cast album, but the revival had a cast album. Yeah. And sort of, I think people, the world had grown up a little bit and there was more accepting of Pal Joey by that time. Uh, and was a really what put it on the map was that great revival with Helen Gallagher and uh, his name is Escaping Me, who played Joey. Um, Lang, right? Harold Lang, Lang exactly. Yeah. 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 And Vivian um, Siegel came back to create the part she had played, recreate the part she'd played originally. It was also that album, the 1950 album that became, that caused me to become obsessed with the show. As Shoshana knows, by the way, during my podcast, my favorite thing that you said, Shoshana, was, you know, I had told you that I wanted to, to talk to you about Paul Joey because, because I, when I first discovered your podcast, I immediately looked for the episode about Pal Joey because it is such a literary show, you know, mm -hmm. written by the novelist John O'Hara and didn't find it. And then you said, great, you, you know, you are that you became the change you wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is great to hear. And 
I also want to say I listened to all the episodes, so I've heard every one of your voices um, and really enjoyed them all. One that um, jumped out at me, speaking of being the change that you want to see, was Rose, the one about abolition, because, you know, I I was purposely not saying anything relating to politics at all in my episode, because as my family and friends know, I can talk about progressive politics for a long, long time. And I, that's not what your podcast is about. But I loved it that you were talking about abolition, you know, prison abolition, um, our, our broken justice system abolition. And wow, boy, uh, you know, and really pointing to the need for fundamental change. And I was like, wow, okay, I guess I could have brought up some of this in my episode. Too. <laughs> that was awesome. And all of them were awesome. I loved all the episodes. Yeah, Mark, I, I listened to oh. your episode. I'm sorry. D did you ever track down the script for Pal Joey? Because uh, the you said you hadn't read it. No, and I know you're a, you are a professional, which I'm not. I bet you have access to that. I will. I'll link you to it. Yes, it's it's actually oh, it's it's, it was published actually, so you can find it. You can find a hard copy of it in some places, like on used bookstores and things. But yeah, I've never seen it. I mean, I certainly frequent used bookstores like crazy. I've seen the book Pal Joey. Yeah. Thank by John O'Hara, but never right. well, yeah. Curious too on how like like how did Gene Kelly portray the title character when he's so tied to like I don't know Frank Sinatra in my mind, and those are they're not the same performers at all. You know, like they don't really have the same weight in terms of like I don't know if Sinatra like you could play more of the bad boy, but you don't think of Gene Kelly as playing anything but I don't know a sweetheart most of the time, right? This came up in my episode where I was actually a bit insulting to Frank Sinatra. Um, <laughs> you know, I, hey, we, we can be a controversial night. I, I would say he was not great in this movie or in Guys and Dolls either. So I know, um, <laughs> I'd love Frank Sinatra, but I'm not sure it's great when he takes over somebody else's role in a musical because he sort of obliterates it with his own personality because he's mm -hmm. He's not Joey. He's Frank. <laughs> That's how I felt. So I do, I was not happy with Frank Sinatra as Joey at all. And I don't. I assume Gene Kelly would have been great. By the way, Joey was a dancer, and Gene Kelly is a dancer. I don't think Frank Sinatra is a dancer. <laughs> the only um, thing I would say, Eric, I, I is that. Go ahead. I would say I agree with you. Maybe uh, Peltier. I, I do. I did like him as the director. <laughs> Guys and Dolls. I thought he was very good for that role, but it could also be because Marlon Brando was yes weak that it makes Frank Sinatra look so great. Ilana, <laughs> uh, you uh, had something. Yes, yes. I was going to ask in um in Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. You know, because of the different points in time that the revivals happened and the movie happened, and even the recordings of it. And uh, you know, I I I'm sorry if if this is something that that because I, I listened to the episode, but it, it was a few weeks ago. Um that I, I was curious, do you know when they sort of became comfortable again saying the real full lyrics to the song, you know, because it's a, it's a far more suggestive. And then for a while, especially in the movie, I mean, especially they totally got rid of the horizontal line and the whatever and all the other stuff. It's like, so I just didn't know if you knew when it went from being like, no, that's too taboo, you know, Lawrence Hart to, uh, okay, well, we'll, we'll bring it back in. I was just curious. Yeah. I definitely don't know. I want, you know, I think da the libretto that David is mentioning, um, do we say libretto in Broadway? I've been doing too much opera, but the book, <laughs> the book. Yes. So David may know the answer. I think that the on stage, it was always the original lyrics, always the risque ones, always the dirty ones. It was just that they couldn't do that on the radio is right. why they cleaned it up. 
So they had to change. They had changed so many songs for the radio. They couldn't sing the lyric to love for sale on the radio for 40 years. It was banned from the radio. You could only play the music, but you couldn't sing the song. So that, but I think on stage, there was, it was always the original lyric. If anytime pal Joey got produced and it got produced a lot in the fifties and the sixties, it's then it sort of faded away to hardly ever being produced. Um, we do have a caller. I, um, so anybody, any other uh, things there, anyone wants to say? Uh, there was a question from Facebook. I don't know oh, yeah. what I just posted there. Cool. I see that in the chat. We'll also get to that, but I'm going to let the caller in so they're not waiting too long. I think I recognize this number, so I'll see if I'm right. <laughs> Hello, caller. Yeah. Hi. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for calling. Let us know your name and uh, where you're calling from and uh, yeah. And what your question or comment is. Hi, um, my name is Tara. Um, big fan of the show. I'm calling from upper Manhattan, New York city. Um, and my question is uh, basically about uh, abolition in general. And, um, you know, the musicals you were discussing, it made me think of the musical Blood Brothers. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with that. Um, I'd imagine it's, you know, ran forever in the West End, had a modest run in the United States. Um, but, you know, the plot of that is essentially that a single mom has twins and she can't take care of both of them. So she gives one away to a rich woman. And even though the, Joe focuses on how you shouldn't separate brothers and they kind of come into each other's lives and stuff. The underlying message is the fact that one twin um, basically has this really rich life and he grows up and, you know, gets a good position in society. And the other guy predictably just becomes like a ne'er-do-well um, and does end up in prison at one point. And that just makes everything worse until, you know, tragic things happen. Um, and I think it's interesting because it's, you know, a sense of there is this aspect of, you know, two kids who are essentially exactly alike just because of how they grew up, you know, basically ended up with completely opposite directions. Um, and I, um, I was thinking of it in terms of um, the fact that, you know, like in the same way that, you know, ha having to do with a social structures and uh um the fact that uh you know it's you can just change things based on your position in society as opposed to um you know who exactly you are and you know it, it, it's something you need to you, know, you need to change how society is rather than change um the you know who the person is Tara, thanks so much for calling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does anyone want to respond? Uh, I personally don't know Bro Blood Brothers, but um, but you did a great synopsis. So I think I feel like I know it <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rose. I, I don't know the show either, um, but I love how expansive this topic turns out to be. Um, mm -hmm. I actually talked to my mom after we recorded the episode and she was like, why didn't you talk about this musical? Why didn't you talk about this musical? Why didn't you talk about the other characters from Les Mis? Like, and I was like, oh yeah, like there's, there's so much here. There's so much to talk about. Um, and it's, it's really interesting um, 
you know, Mark, you mentioned, you know, hesitating to, to get too political, but like art is politics and politics is art and the stories that we choose to tell are always political, right? And how we choose to tell them. Um, and so Tara, I, or Kara, I think you're, you're absolutely right about, um, you know, this idea of, of the criminalization of poverty and the conditions yeah. in prison and how they can affect people. And um, I, I don't know, you've made me really interested in, in the show, which I have never seen or listened to. So I'll check it out. I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, it really says a lot. I mean, a lot of the shows are real commentaries on, you know, economics and things like that. Um, in addition to just being an interesting little fable. So. Awesome. Awesome. Anyone else have a comment or further question or anything? I'll just say that I think musical theater is in, is very political. And a lot of what my podcast is about is is that is that uh, I believe musicals almost are always are advocating for liberal values, that it's actually a very liberating art form on purpose. And it's part of the the design of it. And if you look at what musicals do have done in the culture, I mean, my podcast is subtitled. It's called Broadway Nation how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. And that's that, this last part, how they changed America in the process, is you can look at what these musicals have done. And when you think about, it's hard to document actually, but when you think that millions of people, millions and millions of people around the world have absorbed these messages, what are those messages that they've absorbed is fascinating to me. Yeah, that's a great podcast. I definitely recommend everyone listen to that as well. Um, yeah, Mark. Yeah, actually, David, I I did men I did when I mentioned that to Rose. I yours was also very much about cultural change. You know, obviously, integration in Baltimore in the nineteen sixties was your topic. Um, I also, by the way, one funny thing is when I was listening to the abolition podcast, I was. Um, when you were talking about which which shows, I kept saying ragtime, 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 and then you said ragtime. You know, it was it was like, um, you know, I was really trying to think. So I'm glad Blood Blood Brothers has now been mentioned as well. And I also, David, I'm very interested in hearing that you run a podcast. So um, through through you, Shoshana, I also discovered he's not here, but you, one of your guests runs a, a podcast about cast albums. Um, I forget his name. I, and so I also listened to that one. So it's yeah. great to discover other com other musical theater podcasts. And I will listen to that, David. I I had a question for, for Rose uh, related to the abolition. Uh, I think at least one or maybe two or three shows that you mentioned, you were dissatisfied because at the end, the system stayed in place. And I guess, I mean, systems do stay in place. And I feel like you know, as long as you, I don't know, I was a little curious about that because I felt like, um, I felt like this, at least one of the shows where you mentioned, I felt like the fact that the system stayed in place was realistic, even if it wasn't necessarily uplifting in what happened is, oh, I think Les Mis, you know, saying, oh, well, they didn't succeed. And I, I was like, well, they didn't succeed. And, and I don't think anyone was like happy about the fact that they didn't succeed. So 
Uh, do you feel like abolition and musical has to be successful in order for it to be an abolitionist mu musical or maybe comment a little bit more on that? Sure, thank you. Um, and I, this is, is so great because it actually ties, uh, I think, to what David was just talking about. And David, I'm really excited to listen to your podcast now too. Um, I don't I don't think that a show necessarily needs to depict, um, you know, a successful abolitionist framework in order to represent ideas around abolition in a successful way. Um, and I think Shoshana, you and I talked a little bit about this, um, about the fact that I, I don't know that any of the musicals we talked about are really fully abolitionist musicals. Right. I don't think any of them set out with that as an agenda um, or as a goal. Um, but I do think there are there are musicals, and I, I agree with you absolutely, David, that that a lot of musical theater is, you know, promoting more liberal, more progressive values. And I think then my question, but but I also think that there are some shows because they are musicals and and especially Broadway musicals that they want to leave you as a viewer in a happy place. I think what they can end up doing is celebrating. Um, some of what they started out to critique. I think Ragtime falls into this trap a little bit of critiquing a system, but then that system doesn't change very much. And at the end of the show, they want you to celebrate anyway. And that's what becomes a little tricky for me is like, what are you saying with your ending? Mm -hmm. I think Les Mis is actually a little bit more complicated because you do end with this image of do you hear the people saying from the the revolutionaries of this unsuccessful uh, uprising um and so even though you're like celebrating marius and Cosette and their happiness there's also this like the, the people will still rise up right like it's kind of the undertone of the very end of the show um with ragtime i think there's more of a celebration of the American dream at the end of the show that I don't think the story actually upholds what the score does, which I find really interesting. And, and just to, sorry, I know David, and, but this no, sort of back to your episode with Hairspray is that I think that's, that's something that I struggle a bit with Hairspray because it is trying to say such an important message about, you know, desegregation, especially Baltimore in the 1960s, but then it's sort of feels tacked on at the end the sort of you know and we'd get you can't stop the beat which again is like that great you know american dream idea that you can't stop progression but it feels and not to you know rip on shame and whitman because they're brilliant writers and the show is great and i love the show but it feels hollow to me, the, the ending of Hairspray, because it's like, well, this is early 1960s, but you know, we still have the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and we're still dealing with so much uh, institutional racism in society that I struggle with Hairspray as a musical. I would actually respond with both those shows, The Ragtime and Hairspray, that they're providing a vision of where we could go, where we can go, where we should go. And that that is what the intent behind it is, whether it was conscious or subconscious from the writer's point of view, was that family that we see at the end of ragtime is the vision of the future of, of, of multiracial, you know, families of, 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 of a society where, well, where everything will be mixed race at some point, where, where it will, we, where we will, race will, you know, 
will not have the same uh, importance to us that it has today in terms of the divide. And it is jumping to a future that doesn't exist in that story and doesn't even exist today. And I think the same thing is happening with Hairspray. The other thing about Hairspray is it's not just about the the uh, the race issue, it's about the sizeism, it's about the, it's all those things packed together that are what Hairspray is about. It's, uh, it's everyone is beautiful, I think, is the message of Hairspray. We are all beautiful. We are all perfect the way we are. And that's what it's trying to give us, take us there, even though it realistically in the story and realistically in even today is is not where we are. So again, it's it, but you're right, it doesn't, it sort of has to defy the logic of the actual time period that either one of those stories is in. I think it it lends itself to the optimism of the American musical. And it I'm wondering, you know, because I'm I'm not American, I was born and raised in Canada. So when I watch it, it's, you know, it's and I've certainly consumed a lot of American culture just being in Canada. But it's, you know, when I see those kinds of extremely optimistic messages, it feels uh, almost a disservice, uh, if you will, to the to the story they're trying to tell. I, you know, that being said, I'm still going to watch Hairspray. I'm still going to love it. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm still going to watch Ragtime. I'm still going to love it, you know. But um, I, th- I think part of it, too, is... Um, like a lot of the the shows we're talking about are like, I mean, they're Broadway shows where it's, it's a very commercial venture and they have to make money and they are beholden to their investors who are typically the people that need to be taken out of the situation to make, to make these sorts of changes. Um, so I, I, maybe that's a little cynical take where it is, you know, you're not going to have the ending of hairspray where they start rioting in the town, burning things down because, you know, like that's, those are the, the stores that the people that are investing in the show, uh, own. So, um, you know, like maybe in the future, especially now where Broadway is so expensive, uh, and I think we're seeing more off Broadway stuff, taking risks. I think as we divert away from the sort of, I don't know, capitalist aspect, of, of producing a show. Um, maybe we'll see some of those more hopeful takes on, on what could be rather than, you know, what is. I was just thinking, I can't remember the ending of Hairspray very clearly, but where in Ragtime do they sing, um, Make Them Hear You? Is that a song that they sing toward yes. the end? I, I, I was just thinking that you can have maybe an abolitionist musical where the structures don't all have to be dismantled, but the song you sing at the end, it doesn't have to be feel good, but it could be like cathartic in this way that, I mean, I was just thinking it doesn't have to be hollow, even though the song could be very uplifting or you could be, um, you know, I don't know. I just think of like catharsis or like, I don't know, make them hear you sort of remind me of the Les Mis, like, um, do you hear the people sing? Like, this, yeah, this just gesture toward the future and the gesture toward like, you know, even though things suck now, like we're making the change. And I feel like th- those are the best endings where the song, you know, it's not just fluffy, like, you know, feel good songs, but it's, 
you know, it, but it does make you feel good, but in a way that you also realize like the, the enormity of, you know, oppression that it, you know, is stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Make Them Hear You is actually a really fascinating song. I re-listened to it to do the episode. I, I re-listened to the, the back half of Ragtime. Um, and I, emotionally, I think you're right that that is what the song really accomplishes. But I, I think that there, I mean, from my perspective, talking about art and politics, I think that there can, there can be a danger to too much catharsis if what you want your audience to sit with to a certain extent is the fact that there are still problems that we need to be fighting. And so if, you, yeah. if you're trying to say at the same time, things are still really bad and we need to be vigilant and we need to look out for that. And also happy ending, go have dessert, everything's okay. <laughs> like that's, a, it's a really hard needle to thread. And I understand the needs of commercial theater, but the end of ragtime, I think grapples with a lot of things. And, and leaves you in, in very different places with them and leaves me in a very conflicted place about the show because I feel like it's trying to do multiple things that are in conflict with each other. And I think that's in the song. He actually, he has the lyric, um, I could not put down my sword when justice was my right. In a song about putting down his sword without reaching justice. Which is really interesting. Like it's just it's it's tangled and it's complicated. And I I, I could talk about it forever. <laughs> well, even more complicated is that he sings that song and then goes out and they promise that they're gonna they're not gonna kill him and he gets killed immediately if after that song, which is an incredible critique of society, an incredible critique of the white establishment who is not going to live up, who's not going to even. Uh, fulfilled the promises that the any promises that they've made it is and then his ghost reappears to sing wheels of a dream which is a very happy positive yay american dream song from the mouth of this man who was just executed by the police so again i find it all very complicated mm -hmm. right um, well, and again i think it's both it is a, a, it's trying to show us where we can go if we work together and if we do the hard work and if we pull in, we don't have to live in that moment of, of uh, negativity. We can actually go somewhere else. But, but Tara, not oh, everybody wants recommend. to hear that message. I know. <laughs> Tara, I know you're still on the call. Um, mm -hmm. Any, any uh, additional uh, thoughts, comments? Uh, you're welcome to stay on also. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to all you guys and, um, I will check out the other podcasts as well. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, and again, you're welcome to stay on. It's not like, um, you know, we need you off for another color to call in or anything. So, uh, you're, could I jump in? You. Yeah. I, I just, I just wanted to, um, because I was re-listening to our episode because, we had discussed um, just the goodbye girl in general mm -hmm. as a musical and how it has major issues mm -hmm. with um, how, um, you know, other people who are gay might be represented in, in the film and not in the film, the musical, and then how um, they really don't do anything with their only person of color in the cast. 
And I was just thinking about how, has there ever been, do you guys know if there's ever been a Broadway musical where they've had so many different issues and they have come back with the revival that's fixed the majority of those issues or really has taken that book and really made a turn for its loop because I would love to see somebody do that for the goodbye girl. I remember we had researched it and that David Zippel had uh, done like an out of town tryout maybe years later that did do some adjustments, but they didn't really go into specifics. And I really would love for that show to come back, but there's no way it's going to be able to do that with the problems. But did you guys ever know if there was ever a musical or play that did alter it to the point where it's set, it's something completely different, but still keeps with the same thing that the original did or flower didn't drum. flower drum song do that i was about to say flower drum yeah yeah really how did they how did they do that because i i did not know that i was had it a, a revival <laughs> it had a whole new book yeah. by david henry huang uh they he created an entire leading new brook and it mm -hmm. it still had some issues but because it's you can't change i mean didn't the score is was written to the old book, so you're you're going to be. It's very hard to do. It was it was fairly successful in that case. People people keep trying to fix Taming of the Shrew, but it's unfixable. <laughs> and <laughs> kiss me, Kate. I guess also. <laughs> but um, I'm thinking on like a minor scale. Like this is not like the whole show, but like didn't Sheldon Harnick go back into Fiorello and like change a lyric about um, domestic? abuse uh abuse um just so it was more uh, i think there's a line in there like if he likes me what does it matter if he strikes me or something like that and he took that out and fixed it so i can think of little things like that well, uh, the the uh recent um film of west side story tried to do a lot of stuff i think mm -hmm. i mean uh I don't know how people feel, but I mean, I liked it. And, and Tony Kushner really just kind of went pretty far in trying to fix a lot of story elements there. Yeah. I mean, I think of some of the updates that were made to the company revival that we just had. Um, so as you said, there's a little um, lyrical tweaks. Mm -hmm inappropriate language and or insensitive what's today insensitive yeah I think but I think that for a lot of things it's more than I mean there have always been lyrical tweaks in all sorts of things I mean even uh in Aladdin scrapping that horrible line about uh <laughs> I mean just they they do that all the time and that right. one they did immediately sorry uh the original court recording, which is what I yeah. had at home, said where they cut off their ear, your ear if they don't like your face, and then it got switched to I'm not sure what. And the, um, I think lyrical tweaks are one thing, but really re re-examining a book, um, I I would say that the West Side Story did a great job. And speaking of the Mikado, which is <laughs> just a mess, <laughs> the uh, New York Gas. Uh, uh, which is the uh, kind of professional New York Gilbert and Sullivan company did a restructuring of that book where they just essentially added a framing story. Um, but, uh, you know, again, with a lot of input from 
from you know actual Japanese people for some reason uh, <laughs> uh, to kind of rescue what is an absolute masterpiece from being an absolute horror show of a racist you know so I think I think a lot of people try to 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 look at these things again if I could jump in at the mention of Gilbert and Sullivan yeah in our Long Island version we updated it to take place in Long Island in the 1920s um, as our way of handling that um but you know I'm I'm thinking it's not only you know I'm wondering Tammy when you ask this question is it only things that are inappropriate or also there's also the question of revisiting a musical simply to make it work if it didn't work and you know yes. it's funny by yes. the way I I I also enjoyed your episode about the goodbye girl as I told Shoshana I have not been to that many Broadway musicals but um, I did see the goodbye girl so I think three of us here saw it nice. Um, <laughs> And I saw it, I saw it actually, it was a work thing. My, I worked for a company where we bought out like the entire, like an entire balcony and all of us went. Um, but I didn't feel like this show, like did that show take root um, and become a show that has a life outside of its original run? As far, so, you know, I wasn't aware that it did. So I was even surprised to see that episode. And, <laughs> um, and I'm thinking like another reason to repair a show is simply because the music is good, but the show just doesn't emotionally work. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. I, I, here, I, if I could just throw in a segue, because I know a few of us have mentioned The Music Man by Meredith Wilson. Um, I wonder if anyone but me ever wrote, ever read what Meredith Wilson's memoir. He actually wrote two books. One was about the making of the Music Man, and the other was about his childhood in Iowa. But the fascinating thing is that he was obsessed with the fact that the story of the child who has a stutter or has a speech impediment he just didn't think it quite worked and he kept changing it up until the last minute and i think the last line of the of the memoir about the making of the music man um which was just a wonderful book um you know after winning all the awards and becoming such a huge hit i think he talked turned to one of his collaborators and said we still never figured out the book i i got i think it was listening to this podcast maybe a year or two ago where I like after the music man being my favorite musical for my whole life it wasn't until that minute you know especially because when you listen to something as a child you don't or when you watch something as a child you don't pick up I didn't realize that Winthrop was the son and Marion was like just just right over my head yeah <laughs> over a lot of people I mean we still don't know is he really her son or her brother I mean now that you say it I mean clearly <laughs> it's, it's just like a, no it's I think it's all right this is like a little rumor that got started that is not true but um <laughs> yeah but it could be true could it be. could it yes. could be true but it's not like oh my god that's it like it's it's just like but the age difference and I think also because in the movie, the age difference uh, is much greater, but um, the age difference is is not like uh, out of the realm of possibility. But anyway, the music man. To, um, to play off of that there, the show Schmigadoon actually takes that um, that trope of like in the music man of Winthrop and um, I forgot her name. And, Marion. 
Marianne, I think. <laughs> and uh, you're right, Mary, Mary, Mary. <laughs> um and and they actually they actually like straight up are like yeah it's her son it's her son yeah they they like reveal that it's the son in in the show so they they sort of play with that conspiracy i don't understand why people want it to be her son it doesn't make any sense to me especially since that's the meredith wilson character meredith wilson is that little boy Mm-hmm. But remember how all the women are gossiping about the Madison Public Library and how Mr. Madison was so nice to the librarian. And yeah. I think that was the innuendo. So what I pieced together, and I agree, it's not explicit, but I pieced it together as well, is that Madison was the father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Mar- you know this is so that's the second time someone's mentioned, it's on the podcast that I heard about, the book you're referring to um, is, but he doesn't know the territory, right? Yes, yes. I really, I need to read that. Um, But I wanted to say it's funny because I've recently been watching Peyton Place and it's funny because it takes place in the 60s. It's about a small town and Music Man, it like, I don't know, it's made me appreciate the setting of Music Man a lot more. Like it is a small town, like these scandalous rumors are like always flying about. Like it, um, I don't know, it, it just... Yeah, made me appreciate it. it like it, it gave a ne- another level to the Music Man, like having Kate in place. Like you know how sometimes when you like you discover things are from the same time period and then you put them together and it like helps to understand them more. Whatever. Uh, I just want to. We have a listener who is um, has been active on Facebook, Paul Nelson. Oh yeah, he's um he's a podcast guest from this season. Also, Paul. Hey, Paul. <laughs> I just want to. Um, yeah. I'll I'll just read his comment. Yeah. Merrily, Folly's Bounce have all been rewritten substantially. I also heard that Big was rewritten substantially after Broadway. Uh, there must be others. Um, and yeah, and he also has a question, which I'll get to I, whenever we're. I was just saying that uh, the Rothschilds had a big book right for the York. Um, they cut out a lot of the. They only made it one act. Um, it still has, and, you know, and as another a, thing. I I was just going to say another thing is I was on a play selection committee for community theater and another weird thing that I never knew was a a thing. Apparently there are some musicals that have certain songs that you can not, you don't need to do during the production. So um, pointing just an example, they're going to be doing spam a lot, but one of the songs that says you don't need to do it is um, you can't do, I'm going to say that the the name of the title song wrong. Um, If you, you can't do a show if you don't have any Jews. And apparently that's a song that you don't need to do in the musical. And I was like, I have never heard of this before, which I didn't know if that was like another, you know, layer on top of people not needing to do certain songs, which kind of brought me back to certain songs that might be found as offensive today. Is that a a normal thing now for community theaters not to need to do a specific song? Um, And they're, I don't know, have you guys ever faced any of that before? If you've done shows? It's just something weird I, I'd never heard of before. So I've never heard of that. Ex- the only in the professional world, the only show I know where you have options is Greece, where you can pay them more money to do the songs from the movie if you want to do the songs from the movie, because they need oh. more money. <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, at Sunny, he mentions Big. I saw the original Big, but that rewrite never really caught on I think either I don't know if when you license that show uh which one you license if you license the rewrite or the original 
Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess, um, but yeah, those are all good examples too. Let's get to Paul's uh, question. So I actually uh, have an answer oh, because I know yeah. a couple that went to see a Broadway show and they got married and they got together. So obviously it worked. Um, <laughs> they saw the Lion King was their first date. Oh uh, yeah. Well, let's, let's, what was the question? So um, Paul Nelson says, I took my wife to see Merrily We Roll Along in D.C. 30 plus years ago, our first date. My question is, what are the best first date night musicals? And uh, uh, Orion, you, you, you answer and then I have, a, I have an answer for myself, too. <laughs> yeah, so they, they went to see The Lion King. So that's why I'm like, I think that's a good one. You know, you don't I think you don't want something that's too out there. And maybe, or, but I think it also depends on who you're dating, you know, mm. if it's someone who's not, you know, see some shows, but not really, you want something that's more entry level, I guess, if they're like the people on this call, they probably will want to see maybe something a little more, a little more. I know? think the, uh, the ultimate first date musical would have to be company. That way, you know what you're in for. <laughs> uh, if you're getting a second date or not, you know? <laughs> I, when I had been dating my husband for like two years when I turned 35 or a, a year or so. No, I guess I'd been dating him for a year when I turned 35. And I desperately wanted to watch Company on my birthday, on my 35th birthday. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we waited until he turned 35. And I guess at that point we were married or engaged and and so that that worked out better <laughs> but yeah company is a a tall order um certainly I, don't want it to be phantom <laughs> I, I think it has to be something that's at least a little bit humorous and a little bit light i mean it can be complex also it can be something that brings up subjects but like the line i keep thinking about is from the producers and uh in in uh, I think it's in Keep It Gay when he says comedy is joyous, a constant delight, dramas annoy us and ruin our night. So <laughs> like, you know, everybody goes home like, oh, God, like after it's the drama. So if it's your first date, just keep keep it maybe a little light. And once you get to know each other, maybe it gets a little darker. But who knows? You might have met in like a goth chat room, whatever. I'm I like comedy. I'm always a comedy. I go for a comedy. I would love to do the producers is something I would love to go see dirty, rotten scoundrels or, <laughs> um, or it's spam a lot. I'm all for a good laugh because I think that that connects you more with somebody is when you can kind of like just release all the craziness of the outside of the world and just enjoy each other's company, but also laugh at jokes and, and uh, really get into the musical. I think laughter is like the best part. So that would be a vote for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Paul, Paul followed up with what is the worst show for a first date night musical? And I, I would definitely put in company, but um <laughs> I also think the last five years would be a terrible one. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> terrible. I, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to adjacent subject. So you, oh, you okay. I, was I just want to yeah. chime in on the best show. I would take them to Gypsy if I could, because if they don't like Gypsy, I'm not interested in them. <laughs> so that, okay. That brings me to my story, which is, I have a very, and I know like everyone else here is a, some sort of a literary or performing arts person. So I think this gets more complicated when that's your life. But for me as a, as a nurse, as a person who doesn't do this professionally, um, 
I have a very important philosophy in my life, which is that if my friend does a show, I'm going to try to go. And or in it's not just a show, but a gallery or a this or a that. I try to support my friends when they do things. And uh, that's actually how I met my husband, which is um, my sister um, plays in a summer um, wind ensemble, um, Manhattan Summer Winds. She still plays with them. And they had a concert and my husband, who was in marching band with her uh, in in college, uh, came from Brooklyn to see her concert, but then her concert got canceled. So he was uptown with nothing to go to. And I was home with a bad back on some pretty strong drugs. And so instead of going to this uh, concert, he came back to our apartment and we found out he had never seen Gypsy. So uh, we pulled up, uh, I think at the time we had a a membership to the um, Broadway streaming service. Anyone know what that one's called? Broadway HD. Broadway HD. Yeah. And so we pulled up Gypsy and we watched that with me being like very drugged and out of it and and uh him seeing it for the first time and my sister just blissed out because it's such a good uh it's such a good show and such a good production of it and uh and so go to your friend's stuff one and two gypsy is the answer (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say about with regards to uh date nights and musicals there's actually (laughs) bit of a bizarre South Park episode. I don't know if anyone's seen it, where it's basically that uh, men take their girlfriends or wives to see musicals and the musicals have subliminal messages in them to to do stuff after the musical. And then his Uh. daughter gets invited to see Wicked and the dad freaks out. So I think... I think the message there is that any show is a great show for a date night, according to <laughs> our creators. Um, I was also wondering, um, Mer- I mean, what Merrily was his date night show, was Paul's date night show, how how that one was. I mean, it sounds like it worked out, but that's an interesting but one. That's a not great. I would say that's well, not a great one. <laughs> well, it does. It does end on a, a very high hopeful note. So that might launch into like, oh, like, you know. I guess my answer would just be something that you can talk that like generates a lot of discussion afterwards. Uh, Cause you definitely want the conversation to keep going. Um, so that Absolutely. would, yeah. Yeah. Um, my, my spouse and I like to do that, like to go to shows and then go to a bar afterwards and just like mm-hmm. deconstruct everything that we just saw and talk about the whole thing for a while. We had um, a subscription to signature theater and there's um, I know someone on this call is calling from Philly. Um, and I'm originally from the Philly area and there's a really where there used to be a really great cheesesteak bar around the corner from Signature <laughs> Theater. And so we would go to the show and then go eat cheesesteaks and just like dig into everything. And I feel like Merrily would really give you like it's not so sad at the end that you're on a downer, but it's given you a lot to like unpack together. Yeah. I think one I wouldn't choose, and even though it's so much to unpack, I think I'd have to be a little more comfortable with somebody. I don't think I'd see passion with them on <laughs> first day. I think that's a mistake. <laughs> that's me. But uh, yeah. That's probably but wise. 
Yeah. yeah. Maybe a little nightmare. That one and that one in aspects of love. Because <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> if it's very nobody weird. should see aspects. <laughs> I saw it at Walnut as a 13-year-old with my dad. We didn't know anything about the show. So we have front row seats and intermission comes and we just turn and look at each other. Go, what then? <laughs> it was just so uncomfortable. What, what, sometimes how we like to go into see shows is we we don't want to know anything about it. Um, but it, it does leave a mark on you when you see shows with somebody. It just doesn't work out. But yeah, don't don't see that one. <laughs> I I should put Paul Nelson as my slash name, but Paul Nelson also chimed in to say my wife's perfect date night musical would have been Phantom. We had a very Sondheim versus Weber thing going on. I I wouldn't have picked that one, but you know, <laughs> after listening to my episode, I don't think I'd pick that. <laughs> maybe maybe she loves me. It might be of a nice. Oh, that's a great. Oh, one. she loves right. me would be good. Yeah. Um, I want to, um, does anyone have any other, uh, comments about an episode from this season, um, that they want to, uh, get in before we, I want to just like do a, that little quick, um, uh, why is this so good section, uh, before ending, but I also want to make sure we've talked about, um, everything. I will say, Eric, I went, since we, uh, did our your episode I went to Disneyland and uh so I got to experience firsthand uh the rides again which I hadn't since I was a kid and so it was really great to have the context that context in my head for uh well Haunted Mansion was all uh Stone Cold Classic can't be yeah that was actually all done with Nightmare Before Christmas stuff for the on the theme but yeah, i was um, just there in september and it was the same yeah. thing. uh but uh i rarely get to see that one i know a lot of people complain because it like eats up half the year but i love when i get to see the night before oh, it's Christmas. great mm-hmm. it's better it was, than the yeah. disneyland version the regular version i'm sorry <laughs> but the walt disney world haunted mansion is far superior to disneyland's <laughs> but then the french phantom manor is even that's, that's on the ahead of, of that's yeah. on the oh my god it's amazing yeah. it's like supposed to be scary rather than funny which is kind of interesting so yeah but the and the pirates i we talked about the pirates of the caribbean yeah, we talked a little yeah. Bit yeah. I, it was amazing seeing that one again because i didn't i it's i didn't realize like how there are no pirates for like the first half of the or no live pirates for the yeah. first half of the ride a lot of skeletons so, yeah uh, pretty much it for like the first- what a what a dramatic build like, yeah <laughs> um so that was that was cool um yeah any more comments before we move into we're gonna do a a why is this so good uh section with everybody I want to try that so yeah any more comments before we move into that cool well I thought so I thought it would be cool to do uh inner white girl from um strange loop uh michael r jackson is a former podcast guest and the show is still running now it's going to close next month um i if you haven't seen the show it's totally fine um to still comment on this song and it would kind of be interesting if you haven't seen it um what the song on its own brings up for you (laughs) 
unleash his blackness feels like another hurdle that I won't get out of his way. His inner white girl starts kicking like a baby. She wants to come out and play. She doesn't care if she ruffles any feathers. In fact, that is her MO. Where he's the king of avoiding confrontation. There's not a bomb she won't throw. Because white girls can do anything, can't they? Black boys must always obey their mothers. White girls can do anything, can't they? Can't they? Can't they? Can't they? Some days he feels like his blackness is a treasure that's under constant attack. His inner white girl protects it from marauders. She always takes up the slack. She lets him feel like a human supernova, like he could conquer the earth. Doesn't look blue in any moonlight Which makes him harder to see That's why he clings to his silly inner white girl The same one clinging to me Yeah, does anyone want to start? Yeah, Mark. Sure. Um, I have not seen it. Um, and to tie this question to the last question about bringing dates to, to Broadway shows, as one of the people here who lives in New York City and is a very quick subway, subway ride from Times Square, um, I think taking a date to a Broadway show is a risky proposition because what's the chance that two people will both like the show? I mean, <laughs> in my experience and where what I'm coming from on that is I don't I don't think Broadway shows are easy to go to. Oh, Broadway musicals especially are easy to go to. It's a it's a, you know, you're much better odds with just a nice restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, the reason I wanted to say that is I don't go to that many shows. I do go to a lot of operas at the Met. Um, I don't go to that many shows, but I listened to Inner White Girl, loved it. Oh my God, wow. Um, I, it really showed me I need to pay attention more. Probably as hip as I get is, is listening to Dear Evan Hansen. You know, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really stuck in the past, as you know from me talking about Pal Joey and Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, but 
I listened not only to Inner White Girl, but the the whole album. And wow, it's something different. It's something different. So I was very impressed. And I think I'll try to catch it before it closes. Cool. And just as a follow up question to that, like, what about when you listen to Inner White Girl, like, um, what about it uh, struck you? I'm just going to say the voice, the singing voice mm -hmm. is quite unique and also reminds me, mentioning Dear Evan Hansen, the singing in Dear Evan Hansen is quite appealing to me. I don't know why. I have not seen it on Broadway. I only saw the, the musical, but there's a certain style. Maybe you could, it's a very intimate way of singing, mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly not belting. And I'm talking about the male, the male singer um, that I presumably the hero. Um, and so to me, the singing, the, and I, that's probably not the most unique thing about it. I'm not talking about the lyrics or the concept. So I'll let somebody else who has seen the show or knows what it's about talk about that. <laughs> I'll talk a little bit just uh, lyrically that I think is so interesting about this one is, um, and this show in general, is it's sort of like you can go into it and, and, and just kind of enjoy the ride if you're like unfamiliar with any of the sort of references that he's making. But there are like, it is just a show that's like in dialogue with so much pop culture uh, to this song in particular, like, obviously, there's the conflict between uh, identifying as a black man versus wanting to live your life as a, as a white girl and how they live. Um, but uh, the white girl is he's specifically referring to the song is Liz Fair, who, uh, you know, a uh, uh, famous recording artist of the 90s. And so there's like a bunch of references to different Liz Fair songs in this, in, like lyrically in this song. Uh, I know Michael R. Jackson has has expressed his love for Liz Fair many <laughs> times. Um, so it's just, it's like one of those things, it's like just another little layer that's like uh, kind of funny on the surface. It's like, oh, it's like you're, you're referencing so much Liz Fair material, uh, but uh, it does kind of add to like the kind of person that he's picturing uh that he you know he wishes he could live as free as so yeah i'll, I'll chime in that it's like as a white girl who grew up in the 90s and i didn't listen to liz fair or that but like it really um from my perspective listening to this song it really gets me thinking from the the how i lived in the 90s and like how it's in contrast with how other people may have been able to live uh, or express themselves in the '90s and 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 into today, um, and kind of think about that. Um, what what I got to see in media that expressed that was expressive for me, like um, whether I listened to Liz Fair or those singer songwriters, or like how my so called life was there for me as like a white girl in the '90s at that time, like um, and how. Um, yeah, like what what pop culture was there for people, and if pop culture wasn't there for you, what then did you, what 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 was there for you that you had, you know, kind of thing. So that's kind of what it brings up for me. Um, Shoshana, my my question to you, and I guess because there are a lot of white girls here, um, do people identify, feel that the depiction of this mythical white girl is uh is accurate or well yeah that, well that's what I was gonna actually it's interesting you brought up because you know when I I saw the production and um when Usher sings this it you know I was like god I 
I like wish I could, could be like my inner white girl because I, you know, I'm certainly white-ish. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also Jewish, which makes whiteness a very complex issue. And I certainly see other white culture that it's, I don't belong to. And um, so I, I felt deeply connected to that character of, of thinking like, well, I, I wish I could also have my inner white girl and, and that could do anything. And so... I'm- yeah, because I I um I was I was like, oh that that white girl sounds great. That would be a fun <laughs> thing to have in my life. <laughs> yeah, I think there is something aspiration it's aspirational for everybody. Like certainly I was not like um Liz Fair like up there expressing myself all the time. I was still like, you know, um definitely like becoming a person but I think like it does make me think back to that time and and now and 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 think like yeah I think I probably had a lot of access to a lot of emotions and the way people responded to me that was that was very different from how uh other you know black men or black boys got were responded to and like I certainly um had a different experience Uh, that's how that's how I interpret the lyrics I wasn't like all those adjectives you know (laughs) or anything but what's um, that called what do we call that song in musicals where the person sings wanting to be acknowledged or isn't there a name for that like I wonder the I am song often often but yeah I am or I want song which I find like what I love about this one is the can't they, can't they, like mm-hmm. the, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like that. What it also reminded me, so I haven't seen the show yet, but have you, any of you ever seen Paris is Burning, like about balls um, in the, in the eighties, New York city. Um, it just reminded me of like the, um, the pictures of white models and stuff that the ball participants would would put to their on their walls, you know, and I don't know, it just reminded me of that, um, you know, yeah, the same sentiment sort of, um, of, yeah, not finding someone who looks like you in the pop culture. So just sort of, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think the genius of the song is that for a non-white or for a white man, who is not uh, who shares none of the specifics of the character in the show and none of the aspirations of what he's singing about it's still he has found something for everyone to identify with because we all have that same thing whether it's inner white girl or whatever it is we all want to be something that we are not and that's what that's that's what's a genius about it, is it it is universal and it's incredibly specific and the best musical theater is something that's incredibly specific and yet we all can identify with it and see ourselves in it even though i personally don't share anything he's any qualities that he's talking about on either side of the equation that's what's so great about it i i think another thing that really um is is eye-opening is one of the aspects of white privilege is not 
knowing what you have so good. And um, all these things that he brings up, you know, a lot of people might not necessarily associate with white privilege, like the privilege to, you know, be, I don't know. I, I don't know this well enough to, to quote. I've, I've, I've listened to it several times, but, um, you know. The, the shy and introspective. Like you could think, that, you know, anybody should be able to be shy. <laughs> so hard yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that really, um, it brings you into the world of the character, which as someone was pointing out, is very much Michael Jackson's world. Um, in, and which is what, what makes it work so well. And I, I think you mentioned, David, you know, the, the common thread among people of wanting to be something that we're not. And I think also of, of wanting to be allowed to live in complexity and not have to fit a predetermined mold and have lots of different ways of being available to you. And I'm so glad, um, Eric, that you brought up Liz Fair because that to me, that, I, I think there was a, a movement in 90s music from a lot of white women like Liz Fair, like Alanis Morissette, um, like Tori Amos, Tori Amos, absolutely, like Ani DeFranco, who were saying, like, who were, you know, I am 32 flavors and then some, you know, I am demanding to be seen in complexity and to be allowed to be complex. Um, yeah, and, and, and Lilith Fair and, and all of all of these, these, um, this, uh, this movement that was related to Riot Girl and all these other things that were happening. Um, and so having this be tied to the character also to a specific moment in culture um, that resonated with me a lot as well um, makes so much sense. It's also interesting how culture works of all of, you know, Tori Amos, all these Lilith Fair people were reacting to the expectations of girls being demure and so they were saying, we're not going to be demure. And his reaction is, oh, women don't have to be demure. How lucky. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, in terms of social movements, you know, this feminism of, of reclaiming power is like five minutes before <laughs> when he's, when he's growing up. And so he, it, because you grow up in that and you see it, you see it as, oh, women get to be all these things, whereas no, women don't really get to be all these things. They're trying to achieve these things. And oh, yeah. uh, these women are, you know, these singers are kind of, um, you know, being being a part of that. And so you you think that that's, oh, that's what being a woman is, even though that's actually the whole point of these singers was, no, that's not what women get to be. We're trying to become that. <laughs> And, they, and he also mentions, he says, so her siren song, and then he puts out more descriptives of being a white woman. And it's interesting because I, I understand what he's saying because um, he's trying to get the fact that it's this perfect image of a white woman. So for me growing up as a girl, um, I wanted to be that mermaid or that perfect cheerleader, the blonde hair, the perfect nose, you know, the perfect body. And that's something as somebody who can relate to the character, you know, absolutely understand what he's going for. But, you know, as a white woman, sometimes, you know, I've, when you see that your male counterparts are 
praised for, you know, taking the lead in a group, but I've been told all my life, you know, you're so bossy, you're, you're, you know, you're way ahead of the game. You need to slow down. You know what I mean? There's all this other uh, addition to that because I always wanted to do shows and direct. And, you know, you see the, the, the men treated a different way when you're trying to do something very similar and another reason I always connected to Barbara Streisand because she seemed to face the same issues. You know what I mean? Everybody made all these complaints about her doing Yentl and you know what I mean? So it's just so interesting that he marks the visual aspects of being a white woman too, because I think not, I'm not referring to all of us here, but I know I have always wanted to be that perfect visual <laughs> representation. And I know I never will, you know what I mean? You have to learn that through, you know, through the process, but it was really interesting, like really deep diving into those lyrics mm -hmm. and seeing that. You want a perfect body and also a perfect soul? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want it all. <laughs> and, uh, and and not to bring it back to, to, to my episode actually, but because you brought up Barbara Streisand, now I have to now, but, um, but I mean, if we, you know, we, when, when Shoshana and I spoke, you know, we talked our, our two songs, one of them for, was of course to rain in my parade and that also interestingly sort of ties into all of that because it's like screw you I'm doing what I need to do which sort of wound up becoming Streisand's anthem throughout life in general also I mean there are so many parallels between actual her and the real life Fanny Bryce and the pretend character of Fanny Bryce but anyway it just made me think of that when you said that so not to not to bring it back to my episode but I, I had to <laughs> Up since you brought up Streisand, yeah. Oh, well, it is two thirty. I'm mindful of the time. Um, but does anyone have any further thoughts on this lyric um, for our group? Why is this so good reading? <laughs> cool. Well, thanks everyone uh, for doing that. Um, so I think um, if you're able to stay on it just a little longer, we'll just go around um, and just you know do a final, uh, what we're looking forward to, something wonderful section, uh, or just something we wanna shout out uh, that we've seen recently. Um, and uh, we'll go in the same order as before. So I think uh, Eric was the first, yeah, Eric, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I uh, am one of the lucky few that got tickets to Merrily, um, and then they announced that they're going to Broadway, so it doesn't matter. But. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going in late January on a matinee, so I squeezed in there. Uh, so I'm also looking for like another show to see the night before, but it, it seems like everything's closing. <laughs> I don't know. What, I'll just keep it open or something. And then uh, I also have tickets to Sweeney in March, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Great. Um, and then uh, ML. Um, well, I um, my friend Abby and I, are, like love Oscar Levant like we've read his autobiographies and stuff and there's apparently um a new show that's um I think it's called Good Night Oscar I don't know if have any of you heard of it because I'm really excited yeah, they did it at the Goodman here in Chicago uh this summer I didn't get a chance to see it but some of my friends did and they said it's just amazing so wow yeah I I can't wait um he's amazing like yeah he's he's awesome um, so talented and impressive and he's hilarious. Like his, I recommend his, um, autobiographies. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, uh, Tammy. 
So there was a trailer that came out this week about a certain pink girl, Barbie. And looking at it, you can tell that there are musical numbers. It's going to happen. So I don't know about y'all, but I'm so excited this summer to see what they're going to do with it. Um, because I love Barbie and I love a good musical. And uh, I, I maybe it might help us. Maybe it might be the Moulin Rouge of our time, kind of like steering us back to more movie musicals that we really love and make us feel good. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. So that's what I'm excited for. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I watched the trailer for that too. It looks really cool. Uh, David. Uh, you know, it's, I haven't, I was in New York a few weeks ago, but I unfortunately didn't see anything I loved, which was really sad. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't have a good recent recommendation. I hate to be the downer here. <laughs> Uh, so I, I can't, I'm trying to think what the, I mean, the last show I saw on Broadway that I truly loved was the revival of company, but the, the I, I thought that was entirely successful. So it's one of my favorite shows anyway. So I'll just say that, I guess. Sorry. Great. No, it's, that's perfect. Um, uh, Ilana. Uh, yeah, first of all, I want to apologize. I, um, I mentioned this before we went on that, wow, my, uh, I have, uh, some children in the house. Uh, there was broken pipe at a relative's house. And so they're here. So you might hear <laughs> so in the background, I'm just letting you know, but, uh, anyway, but I am looking forward to, um, uh, I have not seen some like it hot yet, but I really want to say it because I am such a huge fan of those composers. Uh, so, uh, yes, which obviously, you know, David spoke at length about, uh, but uh on his episode but um i uh, you know i'm i'm really looking forward to that and also to to the um uh to uh sweeney todd as well so i you know i i'm really interested i i always kind of go in occasionally somebody gets cast and i'm like no thank you but most of the time i'm very you know not in a snobby way just i'm like no nah, it's just not my thing but i, I i'm excited because i am really excited to see what what they're going to do i think something that's been wonderful with every incarnation of sweeney is that every casting is just different enough and so i'm really excited to see what what this one is is going to look like yeah great uh Orient. i did think of oh. something i saw leopold's thought which is not a musical but is fantastic and i highly highly recommend it it's brilliant awesome sub 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> well Orion, i've heard good things about that i it's definitely my to see as leopold's that um there's so much um that I've wanted to see, that uh, I need to see. Um, you know, I'm really upset that I did not get to see K-pop in time. <laughs> um, living out here, I was planning to go see it when I was in New York next week. So, um, but yeah, I'm hopefully going to see Into the Woods. Um, I'd love to see, uh, uh, hopefully Parade, which had City Encores uh, last month was apparently very good. And I would love to, see that if they do uh, transfer to you know proper Broadway theater um yeah Sweeney Todd also it's one of my favorite Sondheim shows so really interested in that and yeah I think that's it for for shows for awesome yeah Mark okay um sort of similar to David I I, like I said, I don't go to that many shows and I, you know, this is inspiring me to do a better job of keeping up with current Broadway 
I really feel like the ghost of musical theater passed because I listened to a lot of 19th century comic opera in various languages. I've got four Met operas on the on in my schedule, but no Broadway shows. Um, but I will I will give another listen to Strange Loop. And if I like it again as much as I did the first time, I'm going to see that. But what I'm looking forward to, I'll nod again to the episode about abolition. And I'm looking forward to a better world brought on by all of us, you know, creative people. Awesome. And Rose. Um, thank you for the shout out. Um, <laughs> I was actually supposed to go see A Strange Loop last week and the matinee was canceled because there was illness in the cast. So I just replaced my tickets for early January. I cannot wait to see it. If it gets canceled again, I will cry because I really don't want to miss this show before it goes. Um, but I, I went on a little Today Tick spree when they had their Black Friday sale. So I'm excited for Strange Loop. I have tickets to Leopoldstadt. Um, I, not through Today Ticks, but I, I also have tickets to Merrily. Um, at the end of December, and I absolutely cannot wait. Um, I love the show. I'm so excited for this cast. Um, I'm excited to see what they do with with the Sweeney Todd. It's also one of my favorite shows, and I think Annalee Ashford is an absolute genius, so I'm thrilled to see what she's going to do with Mrs. Lovett. Um, and then, just as a little strange one, I also have tickets to see Titanic, which I'm very <laughs> excited about, um, and I hear great things, so we'll see. Awesome. Uh, Bethann. So I actually, I mean, it's wonderful that they do this. I've, this is the second time uh, New York Theater Workshop does um, lotteries and I won the lottery. The first two performances, the first two previews of that were a hundred percent, I believe lottery winners in the audience or, or mostly. And I was in the second, I was in the first row center. So sorry about that guys. <laughs> <laughs> But it was amazing. It was really, really wonderful. Uh, I also have tickets to Sweeney Todd, which is my favorite, well, one of my favorite shows. Um, but I want to put in a different show uh, that I haven't gotten tickets for yet because I want to bring my mom. But uh, there's going to be a revival of Camelot at Lincoln Center. And I had the unbelievable experience of seeing Jordan Donica, who is a name that you should get to know, um, sing at Carnegie Hall. And he did, he did several things. He did, um, what's the love duet from uh, Phantom of the Opera, the uh, love me, that's all I ask you of you. And he was singing that. And I was like, I don't like Phantom of the Opera. Why am I crying? Because uh, <laughs> he was just phenomenal. And then he did soliloquy from uh carousel and it blew my mind and it blew everyone's mind and you should check out the reviews of that performance but this is a young performer who i just think is going to be everything and he is going to be lancelot in this production of camelot and i think it's i'm just very excited to see that and uh it's also with uh I'm not going to say, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't care. He's in it. I'm going to go. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I'll, I'll just uh, give my shout out. It was, uh, I saw the, a man of no importance revival at classic stage company. Uh, it's a show I'd been really like, just curious about wanting to see for a long time. And I was really glad to 
catch that because we we talked about it on an episode in like season two when we were talking about little known or lesser known uh Aaron's and Flaherty musicals um so I was just really glad to finally see that show um it's it's such a interesting piece um like just with a lot of beautiful songs and um yeah so that's my shout out and yeah and I want to thank everybody so much for being I love these live shows I love that we can all come together and discuss musical theater I want to thank Tara for calling in thank you so much Tara and Paul um who is also I guess this season thank you so much for being a part of the show even on um you know commenting on Facebook on the Facebook thread um definitely check out his episode as well um uh on music uh I think I forget the exact title but on music the evolution of music and musical theater or something like that role of music and musical theater yeah something like that yeah and um yeah and just some like announcements before we go um looking forward to next season season six um you know we'll definitely start up again um sometime in the new year um and I will uh be experimenting with like a different kind of release schedule this year um possibly doing one episode a month but going through the entire year instead of every other uh week and with a break in between so uh get ready for that (laughs) coming uh don't forget we I started the scene to song newsletter last year so um if you're not subscribed I recommend subscribing so you can get in your inbox um but I also always post those on our the social media as well I also started the patreon this year um so if you're interested in supporting the show uh with actual money um that's where to do it um there is some bonus content on there for patrons um but uh you know it's it's really just uh if you'd like to support so thank you so much everyone for tuning in this is gonna live on the facebook page uh so if you weren't able to if people weren't able to watch live you can definitely watch it later it'll also become a podcast episode uh so you can just if you're just a podcast listener then you can just listen to it uh but yeah thank you so much everyone for tuning in thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song scene to song will be going on a brief hiatus to prepare for season six and will return in early 2023 in the meantime, you can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at scenetosong, on Twitter at scenesong, and on Facebook at scenetosong with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Thank you to everyone who has listened and happy new year.